Osiris. We've had a problem recently, and I'm not talking about ripcorded jams. The coffee somehow keeps leaking out of our cup. And for two dads, this is a huge problem. Fortunately, we can now refill it with delicious fresh brews from Passion House Coffee Roasters, our new coffee sponsor. Passion House is founded by a longtime fan in Chicago. They've been sourcing and roasting some of the best beans in the world since 2011. Now, they're asking for your help naming one of their newest coffees, an experimental micro-lot from a renowned farm in Colombia. With coffees named Millie Grace, LSD, and Box of Rain, the bar is high for a new name. We know you can help. So go to passionhousecoffee.com backslash Osiris. That's passionhousecoffee.com backslash Osiris to read about the mystery coffee and submit your idea for the coffee name. While you're there, pick up some freshly roasted beans so you can have a cup of coffee and catch your breath, just like our buddy Fee. They ship everywhere, and listeners get 30% off their coffee. Those who know me know I take my coffee very seriously, usually a four or five cup a day guy. So I actually had the Box of Rain blend this morning, ground the beans, took a sip and said, oh yeah, and that's the... Same type of, oh yeah, when Trey steers the jam into a major key and ghost. So. Absolutely. It's really great stuff. Please remember, enter Osiris. That's O-S-I-R-I-S at checkout. And thanks, Passion House. Cyprus. I was at a lame house party in New Brunswick, New Jersey. But if you were, tell us your story. Yes, we want to know what your experience at Big Cypress was. Please send an audio recording about your experience, including traveling to the festival, what the scene was like, the music, and of course, that legendary midnight to sunrise set. Did you make it through the night or did you fall asleep? I'm guessing that if you heard that cross-eyed and painless and you fell asleep, there was something seriously wrong with you. Absolutely. No idea how anyone could have fallen asleep through that set. So if you are interested in sharing your story here with Osiris Pod, please send an audio submission to bigcypress at osirispod.com. This could be an audio message. This could be video. Whatever, you, whatever you're thinking, we want to get... Um, many stories from as many fans about what it was like being at Big Cypress as we are here in the 20th anniversary year of Big Cypress. Um, so please send once again your submissions to bigcypress at osirispod.com. 
And by submitting your Big Cypress story and related materials, you're authorizing Osiris Media and the Helping Friendly Podcast if they choose to freely utilize your submission and to publicize your name, age, and city in relation to it, and its podcasts, videos, and other online media. You affirm that you're over the age of 18. And I think you'd have to be over the age of 18 unless you were in utero at Big Cypress. <laughs> So send over your submissions once again to bigcypress at osirispod.com. We cannot wait to hear all you guys' stories. David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 67 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. These are generally not jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. The problem with Fish is sometimes they get a bit myopic and they kind of focus so hard on their favorite band that they forget every other aspect of music and every other aspect of their life and it's really kind of sad and scary and we're trying to do something about that we really are we're on a mission here guys we've been on a mission now for over two years to help you all to take the music of fish and go beyond the pond, go beyond your musical horizons. And I think we've been a little bit successful, just a little bit. And we're happy to have all of you guys join us here for the ride. Um, especially as we are, as of publishing, at Summer Tour 2019, 10 years since Fish has been touring uh, since 3.0. Um, and we're very excited here. We've got an excellent episode for you today. This is our first of three episodes this year that are going to be focusing on Big Cypress and the massive event that happened 20 years ago. Uh, for today's episode, we are going to be covering the split open and melt into Catapult from December 31st, 1999. And we've got some great songs, some great tracks to spin off here and talk about some nostalgia and some great aspects of uh, the music that came out of uh, the Split Open and Melt Jam that we both absolutely love. So themes that we're going to explore in this episode include blissfully spinning into Y2K, great albums from the end of the century, and a brief history of Catapult. And on that note, let's get to the fish.
update. So why are we talking of all the jams that happened at Big Cypress in December of 1999? Why are we talking about the split open and melt from set one, the daylight set? Well, really, of everything that split open and melt can do when it goes for a type two ride, perhaps never has it sounded so pretty, so lilting, so danceable as this one did especially when at 11 minutes and three seconds, it shifts from this cacophonous space that it usually resides in into something more summery and bright. Yeah, usually, uh, especially as of late, we're used to split open and melt being a sludge fest, as in it's getting angry and the lights look like they're gonna fall on Trey and maim the band. This is not that. No, when Trey kicks it into catapult with a chord that just sounds like an early morning breeze drifting through an open window, it's really just one of the happiest sounds I feel like I've ever heard from Fish. This is a jam that sounds like a band at the end of the world and carefree over whatever future prospects they have. They are not preparing for the long night of Y2K, rather an eternal dusk, a blissful cocktail hour that will last forever. Indeed. And this jam actually kind of reminds me a lot of, in 3.0 recently, like a second light jam. Yeah. You know, this light, it used to be kind of early 3.0, 2010, 2011, you got your good like 12, 13 minutes of kind of jamming around the main theme in that mode. But as of late, it's really, um, like for example, December 30 of 2018 especially, some of the more recent Dick's versions, it kind of has a, a second stanza, so to speak, where it gets much more melodic and quieter, and then Trey kind of peaks it. Sort of like, you know, lightly grooving bliss where John Fishman is a bit of the MVP. Totally. And that kind of, this jam reminds me of sort of like a dry run for that. Yeah, it, it, it it's kind of um, what you're describing that we hear a lot in 2018 Lights. It's kind of the closest I get now to this millennial blissful sound that was in so many great jams throughout 1999 that I think we're going to mention here in a little bit. But I totally, totally hear what you're talking about. Um, in terms of, you know, comparable versions of Split Open and Melt, and like we were saying, a lot of the time, especially now in 3.0, if you're very familiar with these versions, it's a very sludgy wall of sound kind of noise-based jam. Um, but around 1999, 2000, there were a lot of versions that there were a lot of versions that would kind of move into this bright, you know, brightly lit space. Um, the October 2nd, 1999 version from Minneapolis, excellent, excellent show. Uh, December 4th, 99 from Cincinnati. Uh, uh, June 25th, 2000 from just a few months later in Raleigh. And the uh, July 6th, 2013, bringing it all the way to 3.0 version from SPAC. One of the most unique fish jams I've ever heard, especially here in the 3.0 era. One that I absolutely loved watching on the webcast and listening back to it holds up all the time. I was at that show. I actually heard most of the blissy part from a Portageon is I made the mistake of thinking it would be a, a traditional version of the song to cap off what was a pretty traditional first set. And when you're at SPAC, you'll know that uh, if you're in the pavilion to get to the Port of Johns, you have to go through quite a big, expansive lawn, muddy and otherwise, running through all kinds of wooks. So yeah. 
kind of screwed it up timing wise, but that jam is it's an excellent jam. It's the beautiful unpredictability of um uh you know, fish and the fact that you are not wrong to think, okay, it's split up in a melt it's eleven minutes, I can beat the sound the uh set break crowd. And uh exactly. <laughs> and that's the version where they decide to go off in this really weird, bizarre, melodic kind of dream space before um it was almost as though fish completely forgot how to end the song. <laughs> um, so in addition to the, the segment of jamming within split up in a melt that we're going to play, we would be remiss to uh, not mention the catapult, which is also going to be played in this because the catapult is a part of this. Uh, this is kind of one of those jams that could only go into catapult. that sounds so unique, even to fish's style. Um, so we wanted to, offer up a brief history of catapults um catapult is a lot like mike songs during early 1.0 fish in that it's uh and not mike song but mike songs uh in that it's not really a complete song it's kind of bizarre it could really only be written and played live by a band like fish and train notes this when they finish playing catapult that the only place that you could play a song like that is the biggest concert in the world at the end of the world um in its 33 performances, it has served as a segue and or injection of humor within a set pretty much every time. Some notable versions include the June 24th, excuse me, the June 22nd, 1994 version from Columbus, which was released on Live Fish uh, 10 as a Midnight Rider tease. The July 16th, 1994 version from Sugarbush in which Fishman yells, No wedding! You wish! Couple... <laughs> couple no. Maybe no. Yeah, <laughs> a couple weeks before uh, Trey's wedding. And the 11-16-1996 version from Omaha. One of my favorite shows and favorite sets from Fall 1996. Uh, I am a big Fall 96 uh, fan. I would love for shows like this to be released. Uh, and soundboard quality, but the gym into vi vibration of life into Kung into catapult segment is an absolute dream. What else can we? That the that's the word American band show. Right? American band show. It's right. Fantastic playing, <laughs> fantastic jamming, and this segment of music is excellent. I, I believe. Don't quote me on this. I believe it's the uh, Hood Note show as well. Okay, I think that's correct. Going forward, we've got December 13th, 1997 from Albany. The, uh, it comes out, catapult in the middle of a very funky Wikipog jam. Of course, lots of bringing the dude in that show. We have uh, September 29th, 1999 from Memphis, which is a show that uh, we discussed in an early episode of Beyond the Pond. The catapult goes into um, a little start-stop action in a Mike's groove, which had a lot of kind of funny 1994 style stuff in it and then july 18 2003 from alpine valley this is kind of probably the closest comparison to big cypress yeah this was my second fish show they played a 23 minute down with disease and then got into this chord progression that upon re-listen realized it was basically they were playing psycho killer uh but instead of singing psycho killer trey stepped to the mic and started singing catapult and it's still one of my favorite moments uh i've ever experienced with fish 
in that massive pavilion in Alpine Valley that I hope to be at uh, again this summer. Still tentatively up in the air, but uh, man, oh man, that's a killer, killer version of Catapult. There was a Catapult, speaking of Psycho Killer, I want to say in um, the Hartford 2009 shit, right? You're correct. It was like, that's right, it was Psycho Killer, uh, Ghost Psycho Killer and the Ghost, and then somehow Catapult made its way into like the ping pongy jam with Iculus. It was a very, very sticky set. Yes. But a great set. Love that show. Yeah, it was that, and then they played it again at Meriwether for the Tweezer uh, Fest in 2014, and those are the last two versions we've ever heard. I, I thought that we were going to get wait, one. They had, they, wait, they haven't played Catapults in 2014? They've not, no. I, I, I oh, was, shit. I was convinced, and um, friend of the pod. They got to Baker's Desmond out playing Catapult, my God. I know, I know. Um, friend of the pod, Justin Bruce, will note that I had a mini freakout during the twist on uh, 11 1 2018 where they started playing this really demented kind of circus theme jam and trey started uh singing over it and i just could have sworn they were going to go into catapult it was so perfectly set up for it but uh it wasn't meant to be so hopefully hopefully <laughs> someone will catch that here in the next uh maybe they'll play it this summer that would be really cool <laughs> trey if you were out there listening Play Catapult. Yes. <laughs> Patrick Jordan, if you are out there listening. If you're out there listening. Please put, uh, put something in Trey's ear. Tom Marshall, if you are out there listening, someone please tell Trey Catapult somewhere this summer, preferably at uh, Alpine Valley or Dick's. So, um, stepping back, as we noted at the top, we are going to cover Big Cypress in three separate episodes this uh, this year. Uh, we've got a couple other jams we've been discussing, uh, focusing on, and talking a bit about um, Big Cypress, and we're going to focus on um, the 12:30 and uh, 12:31 set two uh, in a future episode. But we wanted to talk here, kind of to set the table in terms of Big Cypress, because you know Big Cypress was such a massive event for Fish, uh, for the fan base. I mean, a larger jam band musical community, rock musical community. I mean, the fact that they set up shop in the Everglades, decided to play all night, played two massive shows. I mean, it's just one of the most remarkable concert experiences of the last 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, and the fact that the music holds up as well as it does is really, really phenomenal uh, and really, really special. But Fish actually played a ton of shows leading up to it. I mean, we've said on yes. tour is 1999. It seems like they're always playing. This was that yeah. crazy fall and winter tour where they played. Um, they played shows in September and October. I think what starting in like the Midwest and then going up to the Northeast. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They played uh, like two months in in September, October, and then took a couple weeks off and started back up again with kind of a classic run of venues uh in 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 december um yeah and this tour so it's like a two week long tour features really sonic deep dives some of the strongest jamming of the 99 to 04 really kind of dark darkly jamming era i think it's a really fascinating tour um i actually wrote about this tour along with um posts about December 95 and December 97 for fish.net 
uh, in late 2018. Uh, I can link to those posts here in our episode show notes. Um, definitely did a deep dive into this tour. And I absolutely love it. Um, so we're just going to talk quickly about some of the shows that happened here to provide some full context. Uh, the, show, the tour started in uh, uh, Auburn Hills, Michigan on December 2nd. We got a phenomenal gin into 2001 in the You Enjoy Myself segment of music. The gin in particular is just some amazing ambient jamming that you should be listening to at all costs if you haven't. Um, and they followed that up with a two-night run uh, in Cincinnati. Uh, the second night featured a split open and melt that we highly recommend comparable to this version. But it was December 3rd which is just an insane show because it focuses entirely on minimalistic jamming throughout the entirety of it. Sand and Limb by Limb are the biggest highlights, especially Limb by Limb. I love the jam that comes off of this. But the whole show, there's there's barely a, a, a solo from Trey throughout the show. It's as if they were um, purposefully trying to play as minimalistic style as possible. I love this. On December 5th, they jammed out Meat Stick. And for that, we should all be grateful. <laughs> December 7th's got a huge 20 minute first set Haley's Comet second set a very uh, cool kind of ambient bathtub gin they play Jennifer Dances at this show play Jennifer right? Dances yeah and the Haley's is first mm. set goes into uh, uh, Squirming Coil it's I think 27 minutes and so much of it is just tray hose it's unbelievable gin. the workers definitely came home from their day in the fields during that Haley's Comet. Absolutely. Uh, and then, uh, what do we got? December 8th. Bit of an archetype December 1999 show. Uh, December 1999 show. Yes. Big limb by limb opener. 15 minute down with disease in the middle of the first set. Huge sand in the second set. Good Piper. And then you had the excellent new Enjoy Myself. Very funky mic bass work. And then into uh, the vocal jam, which kind of is like a cappella twist reprise in a sense. Yeah, it's very cool stuff. And I think um, they play Golgi, and then they do twist reprise for real. Yes, yes. Uh, December 11th, this is a big show. It's got a really insane set list that looks like it was written up by a fan. Um, and I remember when I was first getting into Fish on Nugs.net, they had this show. And I remember just looking at it being like, how did Fish play a show? with these kind of, these songs back to back to back. Uh, Ghost is really, really big in set two and get the first Harry Hood show opener since May 21st, 1989, which is quite cool. Uh, were you at this show? Yeah, I was at uh, this show and the night before, December uh, 10th. December 10th was pretty good in terms of uh, stats. Only time I've ever seen Crack and Rosie, so that was worth it. Uh, December 11th, like you're saying, just dream, dream set list. I mean, what, it opens Harry Hood, Mike's Groove. That's quite a way to start off a show. Right. Uh, aspects of it are kind of a bit of a slop fest. Yeah. Like, they actually, they played Sally, I think, in the wrong key for like 45 seconds until yes. someone just said like, <laughs> hey, Trey, it's B major. Come on, buddy. <laughs> really good gig. Maybe not quite as good as you remember. I know, um friend of the pod Ryan Nichols that might be his favorite fish show I think he told me it's between that and um, Van Andel Arena November 11 98 which as a recording was just recently a live fish release you may 
have him on again in the future to talk about that show. I think we have but. to. Um, moving on from there, uh, the next night in Hartford. Were you at this show? No, this was a Sunday. Okay, okay. I've gone to a lot of a lot of Hartford shows, but no, this was a Sunday night with a really good drowned, if I recall. Yeah, drowned in all caps here in our notes. It's 30 minutes of just really incredible ambient jamming. It's one of my favorite jams from the run, and just a powerful, powerful statement from the band. Um, the next night in, I believe, Providence, we've got a really big piper and a sand that uh, explores like crazy. Um, really, really good stuff. And uh, the following, or two nights later, down in D.C., uh, we've got... Down Z's Gin Free and Reba going deep in just like the most 1999 way possible. December 16th, that was an, that was an official release. It's got a sand, but you're here for the tweezer. Jesus Christ, it's quite a tweezer. Oh, oh man, this tweezer. Trey just locks into it's. I think the second to last song in the set. They they jam sand like 23 minutes. And then they play Tweezer out of nowhere, and Trey locks into this riff that builds in such a melodic, uh, like a slowed-down version of the Camden Chalk Dust. Uh, it's beautiful. It's heroic. It's just everything you want to hear from Trey in 1999. And what do we got to cap it off? December 18th from Hampton Coliseum. Um, quick question. Did December 17th actually happen? I, I, I don't believe that it did. Mm. Um, the second hood opener week on December 18th. Really great. You enjoy myself. Do you feel like I do? 2001. Uh, really good stuff. There's like a week pog into Buffalo Bill back in the week pog. It's really fantastic stuff. So this, this two week tour just kind of built towards um, the big Cypress run uh, that was looming at the end of the month. It was clear that the band wanted to be in a pretty good place by the time they got there. So, you know, messing around with some really big set lists. Uh, as well as uh, a lot of big jams that you knew the jams would really hold them over uh, during the midnight set. Um, but in terms of December 31st, set one, uh, Dave, we are talking about a jam from this set. What are your thoughts on this over? Um, it's good. It's not, it's very much the first set. It's a warm up set. Yeah. It's a let's get everybody introduced. To fish, let's kind of ease our toe into the stream. It's got a pretty good tube, definitely fun and funky. Punch in the eye, played well, played very fast. But in terms of expansive jamming and stuff to remember outside of the split open melt that we're talking about, there really isn't a heck of a lot there, which isn't bad. They were just saving their bullets. Yeah, it's like totally understandable that they did not want to come out and uh, blow everyone's you know faces off during the first set and then be tired for set two that was going to go on for seven and a half hours. But uh, yeah, this definitely isn't like a set I'd recommend to a ton of people. Um, this little bit of melt catapult though, they, they did find perfection. And, um, that, that in and of itself is part of the reason, large part of the reason why we're talking about it. Yeah, we can't say enough good things about that jam. And that is why we're going to play it for you right now. So let's listen to the lightly grooving temple massaging lying in the sensory deprivation tank awesome part of the split open melt into catapult from december 31st 1999 
guys friendly reminder go to passionhousecoffee.com backslash osiris that's passionhousecoffee.com backslash o-s-i-r-i-s to read about the mystery coffee and submit your idea for the coffee name while you're there go ahead and pick up some freshly roasted beans so you too can have a cup of coffee and catch your breath just like feed they ship everywhere and our listeners get 30% off their coffee. Just remember, enter Osiris at checkout. And thanks, Passion House. All right, guys. Hope that you have enjoyed that blissful, gorgeous version of Split Open and Melt into Catapult. We have two sections of music to talk about here tonight, today, this afternoon, this morning, whenever it is that you're listening to the podcast. Segment one, blissfully spinning into Y2K. So we wanted to highlight the time period that this festival was happening. And while 1999 was 20 years ago, in some ways, it feels like it was 50 to 100 years ago. It's just a completely different <laughs> era of the world, as I think that uh, both of our uh, selections here are going to showcase. These are albums that, you know, from a dance-heavy standpoint and from a melodic standpoint, they kind of reflect the split open and melt that we just listened to. But also, especially with the confines of my record, um, it it was just such a time and a place where you could – get away with making kind of the most bizarre, non-bizarre, but like just, I don't know, weirdly humorous music that I don't think would fly at all nowadays. Um, so I want to talk about Beck's second, re- or excuse me. I want to talk about Beck's seventh record, Midnight Vultures. This was released in November of 1999. And it will always remind me of that fall. I was a freshman in high school. I certainly thought, as it sounds like Dave did as well, that Y2K (laughs) was going to impact the world. And I was just starting to dive into the music that would define me to this point. Uh, The song that we're going to play off of this is uh, Mixed Business, which was, I believe, the second single off of the record. Um, Was it Nicotine and Gravy? No, I think it was Mixed Business. Nicotine and Gravy was after that, I think. Yeah. What was the first single? The Sex Laws. The uh, Sex Laws, track. of course. 
which I considered playing because that song is like the most fucking ridiculous and bizarre Beck song I feel like I've ever heard, which is saying something. But that was uh, the first official single. I think the first song I heard off it might have been Deborah. Oh wow. Would have been like a leak. Leak or internet? I don't know. I don't know if there were internet leaks in '99. So by this point, I'd been a Beck fan for a few years. I'd already seen him live twice. And when Midnight Vultures was released, it just hit a massive nerve. This was funky and inappropriate and dangerous and fun. And somehow my parents gave it to me for Christmas in my stocking. This record was influenced by Grandmaster Flash, Kraftwerk, David Bowie, and Velvet Underground. So following the sprawl of Odelay, his breakthrough record in 96, and the incredibly small follow-up in the Grower Mutations from 1998, Midnight Vultures felt more focused, more specific, while also being something of a diversion. It's way slicker than anything he'd done before, and the success of it clearly influenced work uh, in the album Garrow and The Information, both in their early aughts. In essence, this provided him more creative inspiration and exploration while also inspiring some of his worst inhibitions. Of note, Q Magazine ranked this as one of the 50 worst albums of all time in 2006, while NME ranked it as one of the best 500 albums of all time in 2013. So can kind of go figure. It was originally recorded as a double album with nearly 25 tracks and regrettably, this album was inspired in parts from a uh, rhythm section standpoint by the work of R. Kelly. It was also further inspired by Al Green's records and Stax records and was assembled at Beck's Pasadena home, where it was filled with sessions musicians who passed through in and out of recording sessions. Even Beck's dad contributed a viola cameo. So much was happening during the sessions, leading to a very lively feel that comes across on the record. B-sides were being recorded in one room, beats were being assembled in another, musicians were learning song charts in another, and Beck was dancing around listening to it all the whole time. The result is a, is a record that just so reflects its time. It's big and shiny and kind of dumb and goofy and reductive, but also forward-thinking in a very strange way that's only noticeable 20 years on. It sounds like a time when a president could be impeached for getting a blowjob, but still keep his job and a relatively high approval rating. Just very bizarre era to be in. It sounds like we're spinning without restraint into the millennium, woefully ignorant of what's awaiting us on the other side. Because by the end of the 90s, America achieved a peak political and economic uh, um, success rate that um, just felt like it was going to keep going and going and going. That we didn't feel like we needed to worry about anything. And Beck could make an essentially black album that everyone loved. No song better exemplifies this than mixed business. That's really true. I mean, the, the Clinton era, in retrospect, was ridiculously carefree. This was, I mean, it was before 9-11. Yeah. We had no idea what was coming. And uh, no. <laughs> a record like this, it felt like um, it didn't feel out of touch. And I feel like if a record like this was released nowadays, people would be like, what the fuck is Beck doing? <laughs> but at the time, it was like, all right, this guy just kind of wants to keep experimenting and uh, we should let him. And I re-listened to this record for the first time in some time uh, recently and I don't know if it holds up as like one of my favorite records of the time. It certainly doesn't, but uh, it's definitely a fun album that sounds like 
Uh, it sounds like 1999 to me. And, uh, it's catchy. Very catchy. It's Thank incredibly you. catchy. Great choruses. Yes. Yes. Um, so let's go ahead. Let's listen to a little bit of mixed business off of Beck's 1999 release, Midnight Vultures. <laughs> my top 10 of that year even though it only came out in november when i was i was writing for my, my college all weekly at the time and some people said like how could this be in your top 10 it only came out in november you're just you're just being cheesy I'm like no that's a great record and it's a good record so i'm going to talk about an album from 1999 that was no doubt also in my top 10 from that year this is the album gorilla by the band Super Furry Animals. We're gonna play a song called Northern Lights. Now, I'm actually not positive if we've discussed Super Furry Animals on Beyond the Pond before. I mean, the fact that I'm even asking this question suggests that we must do so here. No such thing as talking too much about Super Furry Animals, one of my favorite bands of the past 20 or so years. So the first album, came out in 1996 called Fuzzy Logic. That was on Creation Records, actually, which asked the label responsible for many of uh, the classic shoegaze bands, also Oasis. The kind of uh, super furry animal started out as pretty basic Britpoppers, albeit somewhat quirky. And then they rapidly shifted into kooky art rock. They were polymaths, undercurrent of British rock and roll, but also incorporated lots of laptop electronics, string sections, and also, in many instances, uh, they had horns. And I kind of think of SFA as a product of uh, the OK Computer effect. Sort of like one time in the late 60s, there was a Sgt. Pepper effect that everyone felt like they had to put orchestrations on their album and overproduced. It wasn't like enough just to make a record. 
kind of like in the late 90s, it was no longer just enough to make a rock album. Bands felt obligated to orchestrate them, which is kind of how you get like the Flaming Lips, Soft Bulletin, Mercury Rev's Deserter songs, all of the Beta Band records, later Blur albums, etc. And actually, it's like Super Fur Animals are almost like a Welsh version of the Scottish Beta Band in that they have a real cut and paste approach to Britpop. But relative to the Beta Band, they're a little more focused on electric guitar and less overtly Pink Floyd. But if you like fish, you will love the Super Furry Animals. So as I said, Fuzzy Logic came out in 1996, Radiator came out in 97, and then the third album was Gorilla, which came out in 1999. And really, this was the first album to get anything resembling like a stateside, uh, like stateside promo push. It was the most varied to date, incorporating tropicalia horns, Laptop dance grooves, both loud and very subtle, tender ballads, it's all over the map, but they're never really showing off. And Super Fur Animals actually continued to put out very good records up through 2009, which has, uh, to this point, their last album called uh, Dark Days, Light Years. They're on extended hiatus. Uh, their frontman, Griff Riss, has some solo records. They don't sound terribly different uh, from Super Furry Animals. Again, with the beta band comparison, kind of like Steve Mason in the sense that his solo albums are all very good, but at the same time just kind of sound like watered-down beta band. And um, Super Furry was actually supposed to break big in the States in 2001 with their album Rings Around the World. I mean, I think both the record label and kind of uh, the British press thought that this album would put them on a level of say Blur, you know, they could sell it like Radio City Music Hall. They had Paul McCartney on this record. Never happened. It's actually one of their duller albums. So SFA were kind of stuck in the purgatory where they could, you know, sell out 1,500 seat venues in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago with ease, but not much above that. But very good live band, excellent albums. And let's listen to the Tropicalia horns and very uh, sun-inflicted jam from Gorilla. I think it was the first single. This is Northern Lights.
All right, moving into new album recommendations. Uh, just as a disclosure, uh, we are recording these prior to Dave having a uh, second child. And so some of our records here from a new album recommendation standpoint might be a few weeks old. We both believe that both of these records are fantastic. We know that there's a lot of great music coming out in May that we anticipate touching on in uh, our upcoming episodes regarding Fish's summer tour. So with that in mind, I'm talking about a record that came out in late April, Craig Finn's I Need a New War. This is the fourth solo record from the Hold Steady Frontman, and it's fantastic. Very, very keen, long-time listeners of Beyond the Pond, of which there are probably four of you, will remember that I discussed Craig Finn's previous solo work. We all want the same things in this exact same spot during episode two, The Hampton Bag. That album ended up as my number six album of 2017, and it's one that still holds up. I listen to it today. I'd encourage all of you to go back and check that out, as well as listen to that episode if you haven't in a while or ever. Shoegaze, man, that was a huge, huge early episode for us. It's a good episode. Good episode. episode. We kind of finally figured out what we were doing. Um, So anyway... I Need a New War isn't much of a diversion from We All Want the Same Things, and it really didn't need to be either. On his solo work, Finn really fills his songs with more production and sonic wizardry than on the more barebone rock of classics from The Hold Steady. And this is kind of a clear update thematically, though, from uh, where we are in 2019 versus 2017. Like many right now, Finn sounds tired and reflective of where we are in the world right now. All his characters are dealing with conflicts bigger than themselves and some seeming insurmountable, but each has a heart and soul that ultimately defines him. Blankets, a bathtub in the kitchen, Indications, Grant at Galena are the strongest tracks and most memorable overall. They evoke hold steady stories, but with the production behind Finn are so personal and isolated overall. Of note, there's a harmonica that comes in during Blankets that damn near brings me to tears every time I hear it. And it fully replaces that amazing harmonica that did the same thing during Ryan Adams' Outbound Train, a song that I simply cannot listen to anymore. If you have not seen Craig Finn live, please do it. The dude was born to perform, his live show is outstanding, and the banter between songs is worth it overall, as is the kind of jittery and frenetic way that his arms move and uh you 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 just like see him feeling music in the nerdiest but coolest way possible um dave i know that you are a huge hold study fan have you listened to this record yet i have it's very good i think out of his other solo records so far this is the one that has connected with me the most Hmm. i mean i don't think i'll ever enjoy his solo stuff quite as much as the hold steady but he's really leaning into production here i know i think this album in the last one they were produced uh by this guy josh kaufman he's a local brooklyn guy who's a really really excellent producer i think like Stuart bogey plays saxophone on it it's uh you know he's got i think even joe russo from j-rad he plays drums huh so yeah he uh, assembled a good cadre of uh like brooklyn session guys and it sounds good. He's a really good storyteller. And I think it's going to reveal 
multiple layers for us in weeks to come. So I'm a fan. Record I'm going to discuss, which I believe came out in the last week of March, is a band, a British band called These New Puritans. The album is called Inside the Rose. So at one point, there were four official members of this band, I think for the, uh, their first three albums. This is their fourth album, and now really the only actual members of the band consist of uh, the twin brothers Jack Barnett and George Barnett. They are extremely English-sounding, not easily categorized. I guess the best I could do is call them a British art rock band that really, despite writing songs in like a pop rock convention, they don't use guitars. You get strings, piano, vibraphones, invented percussion, really anything other than uh, conventional rock noises. So basically... Jack Barnett, he's the singer, and I think he's behind a lot of the compositions. And his brother George is behind lots of the percussion. I think everything else is kind of played by like studio ringers that are brought in. And if really, if you want to reach for signifiers, I keep coming back to uh, from last year, Lowe's Double Negative. And from many years ago, not many, in the early 2000s, Porter's Head's third just in terms of thrillingly dark, unconventional albums that at the core were uh, still considered to be like alternative rock records. Actually, These New Puritans, the third album, which came out back in 2013, Field of Reeds, it got a lot of comparisons to um, Laughingstock Era Talk Talk, actually. This is largely due to its use of piano and space and orchestration and kind of... Um, Jack Barnett was compared to Mark Hollis just in his sort of unending quest for like perfection in sound without caring much about commercial prospects. I think when they toured that album, they brought out a 35-piece orchestra. And for one of the songs, they wanted to record the sound of uh, a hawk's wings flapping. And instead of using a sample, they got like an actual hawk and like recorded it in the studio, which supposedly really freaked the fuck out of the sound engineer, but they did it. <laughs> so compared to that album, Inside the Rose is a bit more direct. I mean, it's, it's definitely the same band. It's a like progression to kind of like a more approachable version of the sound that they had on a field of reeds. It's a little more overt in its payouts, has a few more hooks, and I wouldn't exactly call it catchy, but there's some things that you recall like right away, like in the first song called Infinity of Vibraphones, it has a very uh, repetitious, almost like Philip Glass-like vibraphone pattern that drives throughout the song. It's uh, a sleek, artsy record that is very, very British. And uh, I would give it a try. I think a lot of you guys would like it. All right. So our second segment of music it's going to focus on great albums from the end of the century. Here we are celebrating a jam that happened in the last afternoon of the previous century, of the previous millennium. And there were some great albums that came out during the year 1999. It's a really highly revered year for filmmaking. And music-wise, there was some great music that came out as well. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, the lead track off of one of my favorite records of 1999. The band is Blur. 
The album is 13 and the song is Tender. This is probably a top 50 song for me. I listened to it a couple of times today. I love it every time I hear it. So 13 was the follow-up to what was probably Blur's biggest album in America at that point in time, their 1997 self-titled record. I mean, if you know nothing about the band Blur, you know that album thanks to Song 2. Woo-hoo, which was everywhere in 1997, and when I was in seventh grade, seemed like literally the greatest song that I'd ever heard. 13 is much different from anything that preceded it for Blur. It's emotional, it's sparse at times, reflective and disjointed at others. And while I am far from the Blur savant that Dave is, this record has always sounded more American, psychedelic and experimental than say park life for the great escape two of their biggest albums to that point what say you come on come on come on get through <laughs> it i love this song this is the best song on this record i like 13 more at age 39 and i did at age 20 yes it's uh it's an interesting record this was certainly one where it seemed like Graham Coxon kind of took over. Yes. He wasn't, um, he was interested more in sounds and soundscapes. There's definitely some dross on it, but when it's good, it's really good. Like with uh, certainly this song, Trim Trab, Caramel, I like a whole lot. Um, Blur EMI. There's, um, of course, Coffee and TV being. The Grand Coxon song with the classic video with the milk carton that runs away from home. Yes, yes. So, yeah. so this record was uh, recorded in the fall of 1998 in London and Reykjavik and reflects Damon Albarn's breakup with Justine Freishman. Uh, the record also reflects the band's first uh, album that was recorded without longtime producer Stephen Street. Here, electronic artist William Orbit handles the boards. Of note, during the making of 13, Auburn started working on the concept for Gorillas, which would uh, emerge years later. And the song Trailer Park really sounds like an early incarnation of Gorillas. But there was a ton of tension within this record, as Auburn wanted it to be more experimental, but Graham Coxon was hoping for a punkier record, which turned out to be in large part. Also, songs like 1992 and Mellow Song were old jams that came back to the band after years. And Coffee and TV is probably the closest to what people could expect from the Blur of the Past and is a genuinely phenomenal song. I love that song. So it's known. I love this record. Like Midnight Vultures, this record feels like something in hindsight that I bought ahead of its time or ahead of my time, if you will. Essentially, I loved song two, and when my favorite radio station at the time began playing this weird seven-minute acoustic folk track from Blur, I knew I needed to buy it. I must have listened to this record 50-plus times in 1999, and it will always bring me back to my middle school, high school bedroom, a place where I discovered so much music that blew me away at the time and continues to this day. Ultimately, this record is the kind I love for my favorite artists. It's the post-peak 
where they incorporate weirdness and sounds outside of their norm in ways that make you question who they really are, while also providing you as a listener with insights you just weren't sure were possible for this band. So let's go ahead. Let's listen to a bit of Tender, the first track off of Blur's 1999 record, 13. gospel inflected folk song like i said favorite song on that record so i am going to talk about another album from 1999 that i was obsessed with in college this is a band called the olivia tremor control the album is called black foliage animation music volume one and the song i'm going to play is california demise part three well actually i don't know if it's part three or I think the third version of this song, so California Demise. So like I said, I was obsessed with this album in college. This, to me, was a record that felt independent and different. This was not mainstream. This is what the cool kids are into in the late 90s. And the Olivia Tremor Control were actually part of a a collective of bands in the mid-1990s that considered themselves part of the, quote, Elephant Six recording company, usually just whittled down to Elephant Six. And some of the bands in this group include names that will be familiar to Fish fans, like the Apples in Stereo, Neutral Milk Hotel, also bands like Elf Power, Of Montreal, I think Beulah, and uh, some others. Although initially, Denver, Colorado was in the early 90s home base for Elephant Six, I think 
when most of the bands kind of came into public consciousness, they had sort of collectively moved to Athens, Georgia. I know for a fact that Olivia Tremor Control was formed in Athens. With regards to the Fish Connection, you already know that uh, they played the song Energy a handful of times in summer 2013, being an Apples and Stereo song. Fish also covered the title track of Neutral Milk Hotels in the Aeroplane Over the Sea on June 26, 2010, because they played a lot of weirdo one-off covers that week, like uh, Jordan Mitchell's Freeman in Paris, I think Led Zeppelin's The Rover. Uh, earlier that month, they opened the show with Lookout Cleveland by the band. They did not play the Neutral Milk Hotel song again, and that is for the best. And there's a, there's a cult behind Neutral Milk Hotel. Some people put that album on par with like The Godfather 2 and War and Peace. I'm not one of those people. I think it's good. I don't think it's that good. But I digress. All the Elephant Six bands were, uni were unified by their love of 1960s psychedelic pop. Think of like Love's Forever Changes. Think of the Zombies, especially uh, Pet Sounds era Beach Boys. So this band was founded by Bill Doss with Will Cullen Hart and Jeff Mangum in 2000 in 1994. And I think they produced two full-length albums before going on a hiatus in 2000. Uh, the first was called Dusk at Cubist Castle. But the second of these, Black Foliage, is their masterpiece. It flutters between richly produced Aries 1960s psych pop also, like uh, cut and paste sound collages, which incorporate uh, some field recordings. I think it's got about like 27 tracks, only uh, maybe which 12 are actual songs, but that's what kind of makes it neat. And after Olivia Tremor Control, Bill Doss found, uh, uh, fronted the Sunshine Fix. Will Hart had the circulatory system, both of which are somewhat similar to, if not as good as, Olivia Tremor Control. And they reunited, I think, I want to say in 2005, uh, just for the sole purpose of playing some live shows, including the All Tomorrow's Party Festival. But uh, they really seemed to kick the idea of a full-scale reunion to gear back in 2011 when they released a new excellent single. And in 2012, they played a bunch of summer festival dates, including Pitchfork Fest in July. Unfortunately... Any hopes of a new album got derailed when uh, the frontman, Bill Doss, actually died of an aneurysm two weeks after the Pitchfork show. I think he didn't have any, there weren't any noted health problems. This was really out of nowhere. I remember reading about it and being very sad and confused. He's only 43 years old. So you should listen to this album. I think it's kind of a bit of a forgotten classic at this point in 2019. And it kind of marks a time in the late 90s, it looks like the Elephant and Six bands are kind of set to take over the world. So for me, it's really, it's a place in time. I know uh, the college paper I was writing for at the time loved all those bands. Other people wrote about those bands. And uh, yeah, it still holds up. So let's listen to uh, California Demise 3 by the Olivia Tremor Control.
right, guys. Thank you so much for hanging with us here through episode 67. Where we talked about the split open and melt in the catapult from Big Cypress Seminole Indian Reservation in uh, Florida down in the Everglades. So uh, just a couple of the songs that we featured here in the episode. So you heard in segment one, Blissfully Spinning Into Y2K. Uh, first, we talked about Beck's Mixed Business off of Midnight Vultures. Dave talked about Super Furry Animals, Northern Lights off of the album Gorilla. Uh, in segment two, I talked about Blur's Tender off of the album 13. And Dave talked about the Olivia Tremor Control California Demise off of Black Foliage. Mm. Indeed, I did. Just a reminder, you can find us all throughout social media. On Twitter, we are at underscore beyond the pond, one word. Simplecast, beyond the pond at simplecast.fm. Of course, on Spotify, we have the Beyond the Pond podcast master songs playlist, which we usually try to update shortly after um, episode goes up. It's kind of unwieldy at this point. It's almost a bit of a running joke as to how many songs are in it, but we kind of like it that way. <laughs> you can find this podcast and the many other excellent podcasts throughout the Osiris Podcast Network, which we are proud to be a member of. That is at OsirisPod.com. And leave us an iTunes review because we read them, and it helps increase our visibility in Tim Cook land, whatever that's worth. Absolutely. And uh, publishing structure. So we've kind of gotten back to normal here as uh, we've moved into summer. We're going to ramp it up once again as Fish is going on tour. Dave might be able to get a couple of hours of uh, freedom to chat about Fish and other music. Uh, hopefully. Hopefully. No guarantees. So let's keep an eye out for that here as we move through summer tour. We're figuring out our schedule exactly and what shows we're going to be covering. But you can be sure we'll be doing some stuff here. Um, we're very, very excited to discuss uh, Fish's 2019 summer tour in a similar way that we discussed uh, 2018's summer tour as well as the fall tour. And uh, new Fish on the Horizon is a great thing for everyone. Absolutely. Everyone is always, I'm always a bit happier when Fish is on tour. A bit of a more spring in my step, a little bit of a more smile on my face. So, if you've gotten this far, we thank you very, very much. Come back in two weeks. We will hold hands. You will fight Fish Myopia. We will do whatever it takes to record more episodes of this show hopefully I will have the time in which to do so <laughs> and we will go beyond the pond come on come on come on
Osiris. <laughs>